Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The pandemic delivered a massive, simultaneous shock to the world economy. Alongside 6 million deaths and the largest peacetime fall in global output since the Great Depression, COVID upended our way of life and put novel technologies centre stage. I want to know which changes will outlast the pandemic and whether they should cause us to rethink our investments. And in today's dumb question of the week, what's the difference between a black swan and a grey rhino? Okay, let's get into it. So coming out of the pandemic, we're in a changed world when it comes to economics. Inflation is the highest it's been in a long, long time. Consequently, interest rates are rising to the highest they've been in a generation, and governments are struggling under the weight of the debt issue during the pandemic. So how much of these changes we've seen are due to the pandemic, Roman? And how much were kind of coming anyway? I think higher interest rates were coming anyway. We had to do that at some point. It was kind of crazy that we had zero interest rates for so long. And yet every time the Fed, for example, tried to wean the markets off life support, there was a kind of huge panic. So it really took a big stick, which is effectively what the pandemic was, to create this regime shift to normal interest rates. Because that is normal, right? You know, free money is not normal. And so this decade that we're used to has been very unusual. I liked free money, though, Robin. It was really good for my stock market returns. <laughs> and growth stocks. Yeah, it was great. But eventually you have to kind of go back to having a cost for borrowing. And that's going to have a huge effect on investment returns in future. So why has that happened then? You say it might have happened anyway, but the pandemic's maybe accelerated it. What was it about the pandemic that caused that? I think any kind of shock to the system creates these discontinuities which have a lasting effect. And in this case, all it did was accelerate the trends that we've already seen. So, for example, in the UK, you know, we've had an ageing population, less labour force participation as a result of that. But what happened with the pandemic was that now we have many people who have not returned to the workforce. So, for example, if you look at the Monetary Policy Report in August, the Bank of England says it's likely that COVID and associated delays in treatment for other conditions have played a significant role in the increase in inactivity due to long-term sickness. And the numbers are staggering, right? So 2 million people reported long COVID as of 4th of June, and about 20% of those say they can't do normal day-to-day activities. Yeah, there was a report in the FT about how there's 500,000 missing workers in the UK. And most of that is because of health effects. People have long COVID, people left other conditions untreated during the pandemic, and now the health system and the care system is really struggling to catch up. And it's not just in the UK, other countries have similar problems. And then coming back to the changes that we saw, well, the Federal Reserve had a $9 trillion balance sheet after COVID because of all the kind of stimulus they had to do in order to get bond markets functioning again. So they have to shrink the size of that balance sheet now. And of course, they're doing it at last. Same for the Bank of England, same for the ECB, same for the Bank of Japan. So somehow they have to kind of unwind this huge backlog of stuff that they've bought and somehow not crash the economy while they're doing it. Could you stop saying somehow, because it's not filling me with confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just imagine, you know, the Bank of England's actually actively selling its bonds, whereas the Federal Reserve is simply letting them mature. Yeah, you're actively selling your bonds as well, Roman. So (laughs) (laughs) same time as the Bank of England. Maybe that's not a good thing. 
But in terms of market impact, I mean, you just look at growth stocks, what happened during the pandemic, a huge surge followed by a huge crash. And now the round trip has left many people with no return at all. So that burst of investing or gambling was uh, a short-lived effect, I think, during the pandemic. So some of the social changes we saw would be short-lived like that. But some of them potentially are going to be much longer lasting. So the one everyone references is the ability for people to work remotely, which, you know, existed anyway. But the pandemic sort of just forced everyone to really commit to it as a new way of working. I mean, the office I was working in, we were basically all working at home for two years which seems mad now looking back. It doesn't feel like we did that, but we did. We somehow went home one Friday and just didn't come back to the office for two years. And we kept publishing a newspaper every day. This is it. I think a lot of people just said it wouldn't work. You know, if people didn't come into the office and everyone wasn't in the same building, you just couldn't work together. But what we learned is, actually, yes, you can. You can still run a company virtually. And that completely transforms how companies are going to work in future. So I read in The Economist that a third of paid full-time working days in America are now done from home. And that's a huge shift from before the pandemic. A third of all workdays are done from home. But for a small company like Pensioncraft, for example, you know, we could have a virtual workforce. I mean, you and I, Michael, we've never met, right? (laughs) Yeah, you had to shut down your big office in central London, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) And Zurich, obviously. But look, I think this is a positive change because it does create more flexibility. And for a small company, that's really valuable. And all the technology that now exists, for example, we're doing this over a Zoom call, and Zoom really blossomed, as did Microsoft Teams during the pandemic. So now the technology's there to make it all much easier. Yeah, I bet Zuckerberg wishes he had the metaverse ready to go three years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I personally miss something about being in an office at least some of the time. In the first lockdown, early in 2020, I confess I loved being at home. There was no planes in the sky, no cars on the street. I was working on my balcony. I thought, this is good. We've reinvented the sort of hunter-gatherer beautiful lifestyle here. (laughs) The sun was shining. But once it got to that second lockdown, it kind of just felt dark. And I was like, oh, do I even have a job anymore? It kind of felt like everyone was on email and remote calls. I don't know. A mix, I think, is the way forward. And it was interesting reading some of the background about this episode look at huge health crises in the past and how it created social unrest. For example, during the Black Plague in London, there was a kind of lockdown, a very severe one, and many people pushed back against that. And all the rich people left London and the poor were left basically there to die. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty dreadful. It's kind of what happened this time, wasn't it? The rich people sort of locked down in their houses and the poor people had to sort of bring them their Ricardo deliveries. Yeah, it's not far from the truth, I think. But you're definitely right that pandemics have been associated with rises in civil unrest and violence in the past. Even recently, so the Ebola pandemic in West Africa around 2013 saw civil violence increase by around 40%. And since the opening up from lockdowns in America, we have genuinely seen a big spike in violence, which is really rare. Like usually crime waves and violence has been declining over time, but that seems to have hopefully had a short-lived rebound. And I think the difference in the way different societies have coped with this is also really interesting. So for example, in China, people were initially keen on the idea of zero COVID, but now not so keen, it turns out. Well, it's gone on for a long time, hasn't it? And shutting down one of those entire tier one cities over a handful of cases does seem very extreme now. Thing is, there needs to be an exit strategy, right? You can't just run with zero COVID forever. 
I mean, when you think about something like commercial property as an asset class, that is surely not going to benefit from more people working from home or from more civil unrest, right? Neither of those things are good for commercial property. But if you think about something like a real estate investment trust, they have their own sectors. So for example, things like mobile phone masks, you know, they're going to benefit from something like COVID. They didn't end COVID though. People were burning them down. <laughs> they hated 5G. <laughs> it was spreading the virus. That's right. <laughs> But you're right, for things like office space, clearly that's an asset class which is going to suffer because combined with the effect of working from home, you've also got the very high energy costs. So what you're left with is an office which is half empty, which you have to spend twice as much to heat. Now, no company is going to look at that and think, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know? Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be thinking about scaling things down. I'm really interested about how much this move to remote work will stick around. I think this kind of flexibility has transformed the way we work, both, you know, in a virtual environment, but also the scope of people and the geographical breadth of people that you can seamlessly incorporate into your company literally overnight with something like Fiverr or Upwork. That's utterly transformative and I think disinflationary because presumably that workforce is cheaper than it would be if you hired it locally. Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? So over the last 30 years, we've seen huge globalisation since China was integrated into the world economy. A lot of our manufacturing was outsourced to China and countries in Asia. Now, is this move to remote work going to do the same thing for knowledge work? Are we going to be sort of offshoring a lot of our so-called white-collar workers? And what will the impacts of that be? Like, yeah, you like to say that might be disinflationary. But then on the flip side of it, we're seeing simultaneously people talking about reshoring supply chains for our manufactured goods. Like, let's bring some of it back from China for national security reasons, potentially, and just reasons of resilience. Now, that will be inflationary. So you've got these two forces pulling in opposite directions, potentially. But I think internationalization of the workforce for white collar workers had already happened except now it can happen virtually. So for example, if I used to walk down the trading floor at an investment bank, you just hear a sea of different languages, Italians, Greeks, Spanish, French, you know, there was every nationality on the trading floor. All this means is that now they can sit in France, Spain, Italy, or wherever. But having that wider labour pool, I think is a good thing. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's a huge thing if that does happen. <laughs> it has potentially huge consequences for the tax base. So people tend to be taxed on their residence. Now, if you've got a company that's based in one country and has been employing a lot of people in that country, and now it over time switches to employing people all over the world, are governments going to really like that? So recently, I've made a video about the housing market. And what I had to do indirectly for that was to read the monetary policy reports from the UK, the US, Australia, Canada, and a couple of others. And what was really shocking was how similar they are. Every one of them says the same thing. So the energy spike initially, that's what created inflation. You know, as we switched off the economy and switched it on again, a huge spike in energy prices. That widened then to food costs and then finally to services. And that's happening in all those countries. And they simultaneously have a tight labour market because what we have seen is scarring. This is the name that economists give to something when you shock the system and it doesn't quite recover to the state it was in before the shock. Yeah, so the OBR in the UK is assuming a scarring effect of around 3% in their central forecast. So this is a kind of fall from the trend growth path that we would have been on, is what you're saying, I guess. Yep. 
That was a shortfall of potential output relative to the pre-pandemic trajectory at the five-year forecast horizon. There you okay. go. Okay. <laughs> Don't say I haven't done my research, Roman. <laughs> but all it means is if you plot them on a graph, you see these kind of dashed red lines where you project what happened in the past and then, oh, look, we're beneath that and we're going to be beneath it forever. Yeah, but that's what happened after 2008 and it's going to happen again. And that's at scale. 3% is pretty massive. And they say it's because of lower investment, lower labour supply and lower total factor productivity in roughly equal proportions. So that's pretty shocking, isn't it? Yeah, but it doesn't seem unreasonable to me. When you think what's happening in the economy at the moment, are companies going to be able to invest? When you think about the labour supply, we've already said that's shrunk. But there's also the question of a skills gap. Schools were shut for a long time. I looked into it and primary school children lost around two to two and a half months of reading progress and between three and three and a half months of progress in maths. Now you might think that's not that many, a couple of months, but these are really young children. That's like five to 10% of their progress has gone. And even secondary school children, all the stats show that they're behind by around two months compared to where they should be. And if you scale it up across an economy, these are the workers we're going to have in five, 10 years time that's going to be a potentially big impact. And the other thing is people who've entered the workforce for the first time in the pandemic, like we said, they were working remotely a lot of the time. Is there going to be an effect there where they've acquired skills and knowledge at a slower rate than if they were, you know, in the office working alongside all their experienced colleagues? It's funny because, you know, it's investment banks. You'd always say people get their feet under the desk, which is a way of saying you've kind of absorbed them into the culture. (laughs) (laughs) which sounds odd, but you start off fetching the bacon sandwiches and working until nine at night. And then eventually you kind of learn all the lingo and you learn the culture, even the jokes that people make, you know, you learn about that. But you're not going to get that if you don't work in the office. So I think it's going to be difficult for those new entrants to those industries. I think so. I think there's a lot you do actually miss from not being in the office, at least some of the time. And my kids just went to university. So for them, it was very difficult in the first year because if you're not there, I mean, half the fun of university is going out with your friends, independence, and they never got a taste of that. But if you're doing lectures on Zoom and you're still stuck at home, it's just dreadful. Yeah, my wife is a lecturer. During the pandemic, I sort of heard all her lectures on German, but still didn't (laughs) manage to pick up German. (laughs) (laughs) But I think also, if they're entering the workforce, it's a very different workforce that they suddenly find themselves in. And they're the kind of guinea pigs in terms of the new way of working. Because some people are arguing that the move to working from home is going to be a boost to productivity. And the idea here was that economies tend to have something called path dependency. Once you go down one route and you build a little infrastructure, in this case offices, you want to use it, even if it's not optimal, right? So we're all doing this hour-long commute each day, wasted time. We're all sitting around chatting, drinking coffee, wasted time. So maybe getting rid of that would boost productivity. So that was the theory. But if you look at it, US productivity actually fell at a rate of 1.4% annualized from a year ago. Now, it's hard to do proper measurements because there was large like compositional effects there where you had people with lower productivity fall out of the workforce during COVID and now returning. So it's, it's hard to do a like-for-like comparison, but it's certainly no sign that productivity is being boosted yet. I wonder if that's going to be a long-term effect. I'd be surprised if it was. The compositional effects are probably really important there. And we won't have an idea until, you know, a couple of years down the line. We'll find out in retrospect what the effects are. It is a massive change to the way of working. And it's interesting to see where people end up living around the country, right? Because the case for cities being more productive has always been you get these agglomeration effects where 
you've got companies in a similar industry all grouped together, and then you can have support services. People can move between similar firms, share knowledge informally, and like a city therefore becomes much more productive than rural areas typically. If people start working remotely and removing themselves from that urban environment, will those effects survive over Zoom? But I think what we'll see is a bifurcation here between physical jobs where you have to show up and bash a piece of metal and the kind of <laughs> knowledge jobs where you kind of just manipulate spreadsheets and information. So I think the transformation is not going to be in manufacturing. It's going to be in the kind of knowledge space, which is more of the type of work that most people do now anyway. I mean, that's the most productive part of most societies now in developed markets, certainly. If we just step back a bit, Roman, if you look at pandemics throughout history, they tend to follow an interesting course. So you have this first spike, this wave of death for a few years, and then that fades away. But it does tend to have some very long-lasting economic consequences and behavioural consequences. What I thought was really interesting was reading about the Black Death in Europe. That really puts COVID in the shade in terms of its impact in the number of people who died. Yeah, so it killed somewhere between a third and a half of Europe's population. I mean, it's just unthinkable, isn't it? You know, you just think, yeah. just imagine your friends and just half of them would disappear. It's shocking. But one of the effects was to increase risk-taking behaviour. So, for example, getting onto a ship and sailing to the edge of the world suddenly seemed less risky if you were going to compare it with the Black Death. Yeah. If you don't think you're going to make it till next year, you'll take all sorts of crazy risks. And apparently there's a book called Apollo's Arrow by Nicholas Christakis of Yale University, who showed that the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 gave way to increased expressions of risk-taking. Yeah, and this played out in a, a boom in startups and new companies where people were more willing to take that risk psychologically. And we're actually starting to see a bit of that now. The last two years have seen a lot of new startups. Now, higher interest rates is going to sweep away some of the unsuccessful ones. But still, I think that's really a positive, you know, that you do get this flowering of productivity after one of these horrendous incidents. Yeah, I don't know if it's whether people are scared into sort of upending their own life or whether there's a kind of rise in nihilism. You thought, oh, I've only got one life, may as well do it now. <laughs> but whatever it is, it does have economic consequences. But it's interesting, after the Second World War also, you got people coming back from war and thinking, I'm going to start a new business, after that huge change to their lives. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mention war, because I was doing some reading around the effect of pandemics and war on interest rates, and they have very different effects when you look at the historical record. So typically, in a pandemic, you'll see a lot of destruction in the labour force, i.e. people are dying. In history, like you said, with the Black Death, with the Spanish flu, quite a significant amount of the population died. Now, what effect did that have on interest rates? Well, a study from the IMF shows that the natural rate of interest over the next 20 years is shifted down by 1.5 percentage points after a pandemic, on average. Now, if you think about why, it's because we've got less workers, but capital has survived, right? We've not destroyed our machinery, our crops, our infrastructure in a pandemic. However, with a war, what tends to happen is that in the 30 to 40 years after a major war, real interest rates are significantly elevated. Now, why does that happen? Well, yeah, you've got some death, but usually not as much as in a pandemic. But what you have got is capital destruction. So crops, land, structures, machinery, they're all getting destroyed in a war, which is obviously bad for the supply side. Inflation's higher, interest rates are higher. Now, the interesting thing about COVID is 
it's not really like a traditional <laughs> pandemic, if you want, in the inverted <laughs> commas. So we've seen death, but relative to the scale of our population now, we've not seen much death, right? And it's been concentrated in older people, which are not typically in the workforce. We have seen lower workforce coming out of this, but it's not on the scale of something like the Black Death, right? Or the Spanish flu. But what we have seen is higher inflation because of supply side effects. This is the first pandemic in the era of globalization, really where supply chains have been shut down. And it's kind of similar to having destroyed some manufacturing capacity. So the idea is maybe COVID is more like a war than it is a pandemic, at least in its economic effects. And therefore, we might see higher interest rates long term. Another big difference with this pandemic compared to previous ones, compared to 1918, say, is a huge increase in government spending. Now, many people say that MMT is now dead, But in fact, every government in the world in developed markets became an MMTer during this crisis period. You know, they shook that magic money tree pretty hard. And we're all ending up with higher debt servicing costs as a result. Roman, I don't think you appreciate how controversial this statement you're making is. (laughs) Well, it's a simple fact. You just look at the debt to GDP ratios through the crisis and every government spent more than they earned in tax receipts in order to roll out these nationwide vaccination schemes. But is that not just basic Keynesian economics that you spend your way out of a downturn effectively? But many people thought that austerity was the way to go. You know, many people would have balked at that in the past. But what's different between the pandemic in 2021 and the one in 1918 is that huge pickup in expenditure. And now consequently, we have much higher sovereign debt. And much higher interest rates. So I think that's the big difference to pandemics of the past. And I think that's why it feels a little bit like a war, because in a war also, government spending spikes massively and usually leaves you with a very big debt pile. So that is kind of warlike, like you say. Yeah. And the other thing, which I've not heard a lot of people talking about, like everyone's referencing the government debts being really high, but there was also a lot of quasi-fiscal support given by governments in terms of underwriting different loans in the economy and guaranteeing different kinds of investment And these are not typically on the government balance sheet. So if those loans go bad, and we don't know how many are going to, that will just add further, right, to government debt. And this has been the case across the world. For example, the UK made a lot of use of these kind of off-balance sheet government liabilities and guaranteed something like 16% of GDP in terms of loans to small and medium-sized businesses during the pandemic. So yes, there's the debt pile, but there's also a kind of looming second pile of debt if things don't work (laughs) out. (laughs) But I think we're going to be seeing these aftershocks for a long time. The initial effects were obvious. You know, you switch the economy off, you switch it back on again, you get the energy spike, you get the surge in demand, you get the tight labour force because people aren't returning to the labour force. So there's an imbalance between supply and demand and the labour force. And presumably, the higher wage growth that we're seeing right now is a result of that unbalanced labour force supply and demand. This is the thing that Jerome Powell is always banging on about. Well, hopefully the marvels of modern medicine will bring more people back into the workforce in time. But that was the other huge difference between 2021 and 1918, which is the vaccines. Normally, it takes years in order to develop a vaccine. And things like mRNA vaccines would have just been unthinkable. But in fact, what could happen with mRNA vaccines was that they could turn them around really quickly. And they worked. You know, that was the other incredible thing. Did they, Robin? <laughs> oh, it's a ticking time bomb. <laughs> well, obviously, my brains have now been adapted to think they're good. 
But that was shocking. You know, we literally turned around vaccines and came up not with just one, but several in a very short space of time, which is a huge achievement as a species to kind of pull together like that. To me, that was the most positive thing about the pandemic. The way science and technology responded. We've talked about how the death figure was a lot lower than the Spanish flu. It was largely because of this, our ability to deliver vaccines quickly and effectively. Yeah. And also to have the technology to lock down our economies for a while and stop social interactions. Like the COVID strains were more virulent than the Spanish flu. They spread more easily. And if we'd had the healthcare that you had in the Spanish flu pandemic now, the death rate would have been similar. So you'd have been looking at an order of magnitude more death. And if you read the actual accounts of what it was like in 1918, the advice was open a window. You know, that was, <laughs> that, that was all you could really do. And if you had to go to work, you know, you just catch it and just hope you survived. In fact, I first learned about that because of a book by Oliver Sacks called Awakenings, where he found lots of patients who were in this kind of vegetative state. And he found the common thread was that they'd suffered from Spanish flu in 1918. And this had created a kind of Parkinsonian state in these people where they just couldn't respond to stimuli. So you talk about the long-term health consequences of the Spanish flu. It seems that the effects of that lasted for something like 60 years. So there's a lot of research which shows that when they looked at the data on individuals who were born in that year, 1918 and 1919, their health was significantly worse than other cohorts for a long time. They had approximately 25% higher chance of heart disease after the age of 60 and an increased diabetes risk throughout their life. And this wasn't present in people born before or after that Spanish flu epidemic. And in addition to that, the children born during that pandemic attained less education and had lower economic productivity over their lifetime. And even things like height, the people born during the Spanish flu pandemic were actually slightly shorter than those born in other years. <laughs> There's various theories of why this could be the case. Is it to do with infection of the mother during pregnancy or is it to do with something about the society they were born into? But it's just interesting and we don't know if we're going to get something similar this time. I think now we're in a situation which is very different from the one we found ourselves in in 1918. So one of the big positives to come out of the pandemic itself, I think, is mRNA vaccines. And I was reading today about vaccines which are mRNA vaccines to treat cancer. And you can literally tailor it to the individual's cancer signature, if you like, which would have been impossible, you know, even 10 years ago. I mean, that could have a huge consequence if we are able to fight diseases more effectively. And I think it could transform medicine. So I think there are certain technological innovations which have come out of this. You know, the ability to network together. Everyone hates Zoom, but, you know, it creates the ability to do this kind of remote work. And we've also got the kind of biotech innovations that we've now got as a result of the pandemic. Or at least things were already there, but they actually were made to work. And also gained acceptance. You know, many people are now willing to take an mRNA vaccine. Many people aren't. But I think that will be transformative. I mean, I don't know about you, Roman, but COVID to me does feel like one of those clear before-after events. Like there were the before times, and now we're living in the after times. There's not been many of those in my life. Maybe the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union. There was a before-after thing there. September 11th, maybe. 
that effect on geopolitics, and then probably the financial crisis. So you've got those three. And I think the COVID pandemic is maybe the fourth. So you don't get them very often. And this feels like one of them. I agree. I think that all the discussions we see now, every graph that you see has this huge spike in 2020. And it screws up all of my axes. I'm really quite pissed off about it. <laughs> yeah. You see some graphs now where they just cut off the top of the peaks That's in right. 2020. It's like, <laughs> we're not going to show 10 million percent gain here. <laughs> Non-farm payrolls just doesn't work anymore. And I think the thing we maybe haven't discussed so much is the geopolitical fallout of all this. So it feels to me like the perception of China in the West, it was kind of changing anyway. They were being seen as a more, you know, strategic competitor. And we're thinking, oh, are we too reliant on China maybe? It seems that the pandemic has really turned the tide on that opinion. Now we're talking about bringing stuff back from China. We're putting trade controls on microchip manufacturing and all that kind of stuff. To me, it feels like when we look back in history about the West relationship with China, we'll probably have COVID as the boundary point. And things like Huawei, having those chips essentially taken out of every strategic communication system in the West, that's absolutely huge. And also recently we saw German ports talking about the strategic risks of having a large Chinese investment company own those ports. Because I've heard it said that what pandemics do is that they're an accelerant of changes that are already underway. And I think that's true this time. So the way we work, it was kind of changing anyway, but it's really changed it quickly. The macroeconomic situation, we were probably going towards higher interest rates at some point. It's brought that right forward. The relationship between the West and China has sort of made us face up to that. Do we really want to be so reliant on them? And also things like the European Commission issued common debt for the first time during the pandemic. It's something that's been talked about for years, like, oh, should we issue these bonds centrally so it, yeah. it's a good deal for Italy and Greece and Spain? And they did it. And like, is that going to survive the pandemic? Will they do it again? Yeah, that's going to have pushback from Germany, I think. But still, it was a big move on their part. And now as a consequence of the weaponization of energy, we've seen them do joint purchases of gas, for example, so bringing their huge might in terms of buying power to bear on reducing energy prices for the whole of Europe. That's also a huge move. Because the thing the pandemic did was force governments and societies to break some long-standing taboos, like that European central issuance of debt is one. The spending in the first place. Yeah, exactly. In the UK, the Conservative government spending more money as a percentage of GDP than kind of ever before in peacetime, right? So you wouldn't typically associate that with a party of the right. But I think also regime change, because now the consequences of the pandemic, high inflation, higher interest rates, are hugely politically unpopular. Suddenly, many people can't afford their mortgages anymore. The cost of living has pushed them almost to the verge of poverty, and some of them beyond. It's true. And there's also going to be a huge call on government spending going forward from all parts of society. So obviously, we've got to rebuild our health and care systems. That's not cheap. As we've said, there's a skills gap kids really suffered. The traditional response would be, okay, let's pile money into that and help them catch up. We've been underspending on defence. And then we've also got things like the climate crisis looming. And so you'll have to invest to build out your green infrastructure. So there's all these calls on government spending at exactly the time where we've got record levels of debt and potentially pushed towards austerity. And also the energy transition's taken a huge step backwards because everyone's now realised that actually they're going to have to burn coal and use fossil fuels more because of the energy crisis. So I think the question here is, to sum up, what are the impacts and the learnings for us as investors from all this stuff we've discussed? So I think the first thing to understand is if interest rates are now back to normal and money costs something, 
then a lot of these things which don't generate income will simply be swept away. So a lot of cryptocurrency, we've seen NFTs effectively swept away. All my apes are gone. (laughs) Companies that offer huge growth in future, growth stocks, I think that huge surge in growth stocks over the last decade in the US, I think that might also certainly slow down. Yeah, I'll go on the back burner for a while. And in terms of investment styles, things like income suddenly look kind of sexy. (laughs) Only you could say that, Robin. But who would have thought the dividend stocks could be back in fashion? You know, even American investors are talking about dividend stocks. Oh, it's the FTSE 100's time to shine. This is it. You know, I've been trying to market the UK. (laughs) (laughs) I think my main expectation as an investor is expect taxes to be higher going forward, significantly higher for a long time. Like we said, there's calls on government spending, there's debts to be repaid, there's inequalities which people are not happy about in society. So yeah, expect to pay more tax and budget for that in your retirement planning. And inflation, you know, people never even thought about inflation before. But now, if you're planning your retirement, you're thinking, well, it's above 10% now. How on earth am I going to cope if it stays high for a long period of time? And suddenly people remember why we had central banks in the first place, which is to keep money stable. And the final thing I was thinking about is that this might mark the point where the perception of the power of the worker versus capital starts to undergo a change. So people have been dissatisfied, I think, with inequality for a while. It is at record highs. And there's quite a lot of research that shows pandemics can change that. So when people have suffered in large numbers, attitudes towards workers and their remuneration does tend to change. Now we're seeing potentially in the UK and around Europe a re-emergence of trade unions. And there's a paper from academics at the London School of Economics which finds that COVID-19 has made people across Europe more averse to inequality. So if you're an investor, a capital owner, one of us disgusting people, (laughs) maybe our returns will be relatively lower because a greater share will have to go to workers. But we'll see. Yeah, because the pendulum swung a long way towards capital. There's a nice statistic you can find, which is the percentage of corporate profits which go to the workforce versus the shareholders. And an indirect measure of that is corporate margins. Because if you're in the West, a large proportion of your profits are spent paying your staff. And, you know, those margins are at pretty close to all-time highs, 13 14% for the S&P. So I agree. I think the pendulum probably will swing back. So higher taxes, more money in wages, lower corporate profits. But none of this is predictable. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. <laughs> so what if returns are going to be lower over the long term? What should you buy? And how should you allocate the risk in your portfolio? If you want to discuss this with other investors, then why not join our community? You can do that by going to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, what's the difference between a black swan and a grey rhino? So, Romin, back in July, we answered a dumb question about what is a black swan. And we kind of said that maybe the phrase is used sometimes wrongly because a black swan is an improbable event that you can't foresee and people use it to mean things where you should have foreseen it like a pandemic. 
you know, we have smart listeners who immediately after that emailed us and said, <laughs> guys, there's a term for the exact thing you're talking about there, which is a grey rhino. <laughs> so we thought, okay, dumb question part two. What's the difference then? What's a grey rhino? So a grey rhino is something which is obvious, but which people don't deal with. Is that right? Yeah. It's a highly probable, high impact event that is often neglected. So it's somewhere between an elephant in the room and it's the cousin of a black swan, I would say. Do you know the collective term for a rhino is a crash of rhinos? Yeah. So that's relevant. And that often plays out, doesn't it? <laughs> so the background to this term is it was invented by Michelle Wacker in 2013. And she wrote a book about grey rhinos, which is weirdly extremely popular in China and is talked about in political circles in China a lot. And they are using it as inspiration to plan for these foreseeable but high impact events. So climate change, demographic shifts. Or how to cope in retirement. Many people just kind of put off the decision and they kind of just ignore it. But I think what I really like is the fact that people are saying, what's my grey rhino? Identify the grey rhinos in your life. You're the grey rhino in my life. <laughs> I've been called many things, but never grey rhino. Never the grey rhino. <laughs> but I think what's good about it is that it forces you to deal with these issues. I like the way that Michelle Wacker speaks about it. She says, I often urge people to think of the rhino as your friend. If you can see the grey rhino in front of you, you're way ahead of everyone who can't see what's right in front of them. Yeah, I like it because it's a kind of corrective to the black swan metaphor. Because I think black swan is overused. Like there are things that pop up which, yeah, no one could have predicted right. But most things aren't like that. We knew there were going to be pandemics in our history. We should have prepared for them arguably better than we did. It's no good saying, oh, it's a black swan. The same is true of climate change. And I just like the way she describes how she came up with the term. So she was trying to think of like an animal. And one of her friends said, oh, you could call it a black rhino. So she then went to Wikipedia and started Googling about rhinos and found out, yeah, there's black rhinos and there's white rhinos. But the weird thing is they're not black and white. Every rhino is grey. <laughs> so she thought, let's point out the obvious thing here. And this reminds me of a French book I read called La Peste. And this is by Albert Camus. And although it was written in 1947, it tells a story about a French Algerian city where there's an outbreak of plague. And this was an existentialist novel. So it's all about how people can't affect their own fate. So it's like people know the grey rhinos there, but they don't do anything about it. Or some people actively ignore it. You know, so the modern retelling of that would be the movie Don't Look Up. You know, everybody can see if they just look up that this asteroid is going to impact the Earth and kill everyone. But people are just told don't look up. Yeah, so I've seen that movie and I quite enjoyed it. And that is really the difference between you and I, Roman. You will reference a sort of French novel from the mid-20th century. Well, I've seen a Netflix <laughs> hit film with Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> but we take the same moral from both. <laughs> but it improved my French vocab no end, particularly for kind of disease terms. Yeah, I'm freaking out about the chicken pox at the moment, trying to get my daughter the vaccine. And there's a shortage of vaccine for the chicken pox in London. Can you believe it? There's a chicken pox vaccine? Yeah. We used to just go to chickenpox parties. I know. When we were in Austria with her, over there in German, they call it Depocken, which I like. <laughs> it sounds so apocalyptic. <laughs> Beware of Depocken. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production. 
co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice. 